Chapter 3. What followed in Charter Street. We passed straightway into the back kitchen, down the customary passage, and were in the sanctum of Cabbage Ann, who is well known to the vast majority of persons, on the cross, in the whole country. Her fame had reached my ears long before I had ever heard where she was located, and I was impatient to obtain a glimpse of so notorious a personage. There was a number of women and lads sitting in the room, but the keeper herself of the establishment was not there. From the upper regions, however, came noises which showed that something unusual was taking place, and great was our surprise when, in answer to a question as to what was up there, one of the women surlily jerked out, "'A dead man, if you want to know.' Such, indeed, was the case, for a member of the fraternity, eminent as a pickpocket, he might indeed have been called a great gun, had died a day or two before, and the wake was now being held with all due honours. I should have liked much to have been at the wake proper, but on proposing to Mac that we should go upstairs, he said it would be impossible for me, even with his introduction, to remain in the place.' The worthy Anne was aloft, superintending the ceremony of waking, and the woman who had vouchsafed the information as to the proceedings puffed savagely at her short doudine and eyed us with a disfavour through the rank tobacco smoke. Two or three of the youths, not more than sixteen or seventeen years old, were more communicative, and said there was plenty of stuff to be had. Stuff is the generic term for drink and food, and I wondered who had provided both so lavishly. The place looked squalid and miserable, and the people in it were of poor, miserable appearance, as if they found it hard to live at all. The walls were bare and dirty, and the furniture of the rudest and scantiest kind, a rough wooden form doing duty for half a dozen chairs. It did not seem as if much money would be forthcoming in such a barn of a place, and as the youths were mere snowdroppers or linen lifters, from clotheslines and hedges, it was not to be expected that they could play the part of generous donors. Mac had again to play the part of mentor, and the mystery was made clear. The money required to inaugurate the wake and sustain it with fitting dignity was solicited in the neighbourhood, very few of the crooked community refusing to give something, and a general appeal being made at the various public houses. The result was the raising of some three or four pounds, which were spent mostly in drink. It would have been thought that as the money could be so readily obtained, there would have been a big burial, but this is a most absurd notion. However grand might be the wake, the funeral was quite another thing. Let the parish authorities see after that. And in this particular case, I may as well state the parish did have to take charge of the corpse, and it was buried at the expense of the ratepayers, after five times as much money as would have paid the undertakers handsomely, had been squandered in excesses by the sorrowing friends of the dead man. Of these excesses, the least said the better, as some of the scenes enacted at the wakes, even at the present time, are too disgusting and horrible to be related. Murty's lodging house was our next resting place, and it exemplified the truth of the old saying relative to every man's house being his castle for there was a double door which was barred and bolted, as if to resist an attack from without. After a heavy crossbar had been clanged noisily down upon the floor, and the inner door half opened, we were admitted. I could see nothing but a little sickly gas-flame that almost gave up its puny life as a draught of the cold night air rushed in. 
for the room was filled with dense smoke that choked us with its fumes and made our eyes stream with tears. I stood quite still, for I did not know in which direction to move, and as I became accustomed to the partial darkness, I discovered whence the smoke came. At the extreme end of the room was a low open fireplace in which a fire was smouldering as if it had been damped down, and it was from this that the nuisance arose, for eddying gusts swept down the chimney and leapt up to the sooty ceiling with untiring energy. There was no one at all to be seen save the old woman who had admitted us and who carried in her hand a primitive candlestick in the shape of an old brown ginger beer bottle in which a solitary dip was struggling to keep a light. She ushered us into a smaller room, cautioning us to mind the steps as we had to descend a couple of feet. Here there was not so much smoke, and half a dozen women, all middle-aged and looking worn out and disreputable, were gathered together, smoking and gossiping in a subdued manner, as if they had no interest in their own conversation. One suddenly brightened up for a moment as a man emerged from a corner, and Mac remarked that he must be Brigham Young, with so many wives about him. "'We're more respectable than that sort,' she remarked in a tone meant to convey pride in her own marital relations, whatever they might be, and her companions leered approval, with every indication of admiring the sentiment. By this time, the old woman who had securely fastened the doors had joined us, and holding her sputtering candle over her head, she preceded us upstairs, where some thirty or forty lodgers were enjoying their night's repose. The stairs were narrow and steep, with sharp turnings and landing-places in the most unlooked-for corners, and several times I lost sight of my guiding star, the glim which appeared to dance about like a will-o'-the-wisp. Once I stumbled in the dark, and fell crash against a whitewashed door. A hoarse voice inquired, in most uncivil terms, and even with allusions to a place and personage not very popular, "'Who's there?' I replied in as gruff tones that it was all right, and retraced my steps with a morbid fear of finding myself rolling to the bottom of the stairs. Fortune favoured me, however, and taking the right turn, I was without further inconvenience in the main sleeping-room. It was one of the strangest places I have ever seen, and yet it would have been hard to improve upon it as regards cleanliness and ventilation. It was a long, wide attic, with boxed-off sleeping compartments running down either side, leaving a pretty broad passage along which to walk. Rude deal doors with no hinges were fitted to the compartments, and these had to be lifted and dragged away before admission could be obtained. Every bit of woodwork was as white as snow, for the whole interior had been recently whitewashed, and the crossbeams and rafters were of the same colour. Looking inside several of these sleeping boxes, I saw that a bed was placed in each, and that there was just room for the lodger to undress and no more. As the glare of the candle fell upon the sleeper's eyes, some started up and stared stupidly about, while others blinked and yawned, as if too overcome with sleep to care much about what was going on. The air was as sweet as that of any ordinary dwelling-house, and no wonder, for the sanitary authorities sternly enforced the laws in regard to full accommodation being given to all lodgers. At one end of the dormitory was a low brick archway, as if a partition wall had been some time broken through, and this led to a further series of beds, each with its occupants. Married couples, or those professing to be included in that category, were provided with beds detached from the general sleepers. 
I suppose that this dormitory contained many characters well known to the police, but they were enjoying good quarters and slept as soundly as if of the just. Two or three jokes were bawled out by some sleepless individuals, and as the speakers were at different ends of the garret, their voices were pitched in no low key. The ire of the more sedate of the community was aroused at this, and as long as the light remained, a babel of oaths and invectives could be heard. This subsided as we picked our way carefully downstairs. At Fat Billy's, not far distant, the accommodation was somewhat similar, though the chambers generally, being smaller and more numerous, the wooden partitions were differently arranged. In contrast with the whitewash of the walls and ceilings, the doors had all been coated with coal tar, and the smell of this pervaded the whole house. Its antiseptic qualities are, of course, well known, and the idea of thus applying them is worthy of encouragement. The floors and beds were scrupulously clean, even though many of the lodgers were far from appreciating the blessings of cleanliness. In the largest room of all were some half-dozen beds, and here a curious scene was being enacted. A young negro, with face as black as the tarred doors, was sitting on the side of his couch, holding his face between his hands, and swearing in the most horrible broken English, for he was enduring the scourge of toothache with about as much fortitude as a child exhibits when first becoming acquainted with molar teeth. To add to his discomfort, he was made the butt of his companions, who were exercising their wit upon him with merciless severity. The remedies that were suggested to Darkey were as astonishing as unique, and he could scarcely refrain from grinning himself at some of the expressions. It was a sight to be remembered, for a more powerful picture it would have been hard to have designed. The low-browed room looked weird and desolate in the half-light, and the figures of the inmates, in every possible attitude and in every variety of motion, showed forth strangely in the gloom. Restless and with no signs of possible sleep, here was one, sitting straight upright in bed, and there, half-dozing, was another, reclining with cheek resting upon his uplifted arm. Others lay at full length with their hands locked between their heads, a favourite position with your outcast, who was often thus to supply the want of a pillow when shelterless. Some few were lying passively, with eyes closed, heedless of the tumult, and only showing, by their uneasy movements, that they were not slumbering. And in the midst of all the white figures that shifted and swayed in the uncertain twilight, with ghostly shadows lurking in dark corners and dancing on the walls, there reared itself the dark image of the poor man of colour, as if the unholy genius of the spot had come to mount guard over his subjects. We watched the fun, until it appeared as if the nigger would never get to rest at all, and thinking I would see if he could stand a practical joke, I pulled out a small penknife and proposed to cut his gums. This latest advanced cure was received with roars of delight by the rough spirits in bed, but Darkey cried off when I showed him the steel, and suggested that I should put my finger in and feel. I had too much respect for my own flesh and blood to tempt the unfortunate contraband to cannibalism, and so left him in his pain to solace himself as best he could. My stay in the street had now been protracted to a very early hour, but we gave several other cross-cribs a call before leaving the district. In one of these only was there anything of interest, where a dozen men and women were smoking their cheap tobacco with a relish that was absolutely startling, 
for they pulled at their stumpy pipes with such vehemence that their very breath seemed to be converted into dense smoke, which hung about their heads and curled lovingly round their necks as if loath to part company. There was one woman who had the dirtiest pipe, the rankest weed, and the most garrulous tongue, and on the pretense of getting a light from her clay, I struck up a brief acquaintance. She was a withered, dried-up specimen of the hoisting, shoplifting, sisterhood, with a little puckered-up face, expressionless in repose, and yet mobile when the eyes peered out sharply at a strange question. Sucking the stem of her pipe with great gusto, she told me how cleverly she had been pinched, locked up, for lifting cheese. She was running off with a huge piece of the grocer's property in her arms, when she heard an outcry raised behind, and accordingly quietly dropped her booty and walked away. She was caught and stoutly asserted her innocence, but on the buttons of her dress were the marks of her guilt, and the cute slop, backslang for a police officer, fitted the buttons one by one into the corresponding holes in the cheese. I thought I was in for a patter, committal to the sessions, said Irish Kate in conclusion, but I got off with two months. She laughed and chuckled over the affair as if she had enjoyed the punishment, and I'm not sure that she had not. End of part three.